Michael, I'm officially jealous. An electric ukulele and a voice like that. That's uh, really great. Thank you for sharing with us this morning. And that's always the case with these guys that uh, work hard all week long to lead us to the throne of worship. I am just so grateful uh, for all that they do and oftentimes don't say it because, you know, we just sort of move from this place to the next. Well, speaking of this place, I wish you'd have been here uh, Friday night. Uh, we had an awesome concert with Matt Papa and Shelley Moore and Hank Murphy. All led us beautifully in worship. Those of you who were here, I know were deeply blessed, even if your ears are still ringing. Um, I, I, I have to say that I was quite pleased at how well our sound system performed. The, the, the bands didn't perform. They, they truly led us in worship. But the sound system was wonderful at a very high level. On Hank's last song, uh, the lead guitarist uh, had quite an impressive solo. And his riff just took me back to the early 70s when I spent many a Friday night in Reynolds Coliseum and Carmichael Auditorium and, and Cameron Indoor Stadium, not watching basketball, but watching groups like Yes and 10 Years After and Black Sabbath and Alice Cooper. I mean, I even saw, I will have to tell you that I, I actually saw Led Zeppelin in Dorton Arena and, and just the most awful acoustics ever in the history of the world in Dorton Arena. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> You know, with Robert Plant and Jimmy Page and, and company. So, um, I, I saw all of those bands before I met Jesus, I will tell you that. And I'm not connecting a style of music with worship. I mean, we worshiped here Friday night. I, te- I think that music is amoral, you know. In other words, it's not good or bad in and of itself. I know that certain movements get associated with music at different times. But you know, if you just wait long enough, you may think rock music is from the pit of hell, but your grandchildren won't think that, I can promise you that. Uh, They will understand that music is a a vehicle and you can use it one way or the other. If you live, though, in in the late 60s and early 70s during those turbulent times... Um, there was a certain attitude that was associated with those concerts. Uh, Whether you were inside or outside the hippie movement, you know what it was all about. Um, It was an anti-authority kind of an attitude. I mean, look, I was in it, so I I was all the way in it. We were against authority of all kinds. And our parents graciously provided money for concert tickets. And, we put, and they provided money to put gas in their cars so that we could go to those concerts and rail against all things, all authority. We were against parental, governmental, societal authority. That's funny, isn't it? I guess it depends on which side of the money you were on and, and, and how well you deal with these misguided attitudes and actions over time. Well, thank God... There are very few hippies left in that kind of sense. Today, we only have hipsters, and hipsters do not rebel against authority. They ignore it. 
And since the 60s have tempered our heavy-handed way of being an authority over people, other people, um, the young can get away with ignoring authority. Now, you can say that's a good thing because things always need to change. They do. There's always a need to change. We have to move. And, and, and what's really sad is if you want to... If you want to know what was going on five years ago, what was really important in society in, in five years ago, go to church and hear what they're talking about five or ten years ago. You know, we're, we're behind the curve because of our difficulty understanding the difference between what is biblically right and wrong and what is, uh, can be appropriate means of of ministry, but one of the one of the bad things about ignoring authority is, in the process, you end up ignoring wisdom, and wisdom never goes out of style. The point is simply this: we all have issues with authority, though we express our attitudes in different ways. Being uh, with from defiance, from the defiance all the way to being passive, passive aggressive. That is, I mean, we we've all got ways that we. We, we want to say, you are not going to rule over me. And as we talk today, we're going to talk about Jesus who was the ultimate authority. And, and we have to acknowledge that Jesus challenged the religious and governmental authorities of his day. It, it helps being God to know what's right and and not right. And, and the point of this introduction is not to say that we should blindly follow all authority in our lives. But rather, the challenge is for us to quit bringing our late American individualism to authority. Especially the Lord's authority in our lives. And quit interpreting scripture to suit our lifestyles. He's the ultimate voice of authority. But it is an authority that we will always do well to follow. Even if it goes against, and it will sometimes, maybe a lot. Against our wants, our desires, and against our sensibilities even. Really? Really? That's what you're asking of me. The title of the message today is Following the Voice of authority. And the text for the message is a long one. And, and what, this is not a, a constant, consistent pattern, but it oftentimes seems good to me when we're handling long sections of Scripture to list up front some of the truths that we're going to find in this text and then to read it. So we'll be prepared to receive it as we come to it. So I'd like for us to pray and then we'll get to it. Our Father, uh, we come to you today recognizing your call for us to follow Jesus and your call for us to submit and our desire to be king of our own lives and, and, and lord of our own lives. We, we want to do that. And yet, oh my goodness, what a blessing it is to follow the one. And as Sean spoke so uh, 
powerfully about the church in Pakistan, Lord, that uh, it will not be intimidated, but will follow you even to the death. We pray that our hearts would be challenged to follow you at a level that not only is missing in our lives, but may be uncomfortable. So we pray that you would speak to our hearts and help us to respond for only in following you at the level you call us to is there great peace and great purpose and great joy. So may your word burrow deep into our hearts. May it find good soil. May we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing we're going to see in this text is that the gospel is about done, not about do. Uh, another way of saying that would be that our standing with God is not about religion. It's not about rituals. It's not about doing the right things. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. The word gospel is from the Greek word euangelion. And it was used as a proclamation of good news, not a list of expectations to be met. Now, you'll recall in our study of covenant recently, we talked about how in the ancient Near East, a a, a stronger power would say to a weaker power, this, this, and this you must do, and if not, I will break you. I will destroy you. That's not what the gospel was about at all. The gospel was saying... Good news, good news. And it was used in a secular sense like this. When, a, when a, a, a nation had been oppressed by another nation and the army threw off those shackles, a herald would go to a city and say, Good news, our army has defeated the enemy. You can now live in freedom. That's what Jesus was saying when he proclaimed the gospel of God. Good news. God has made a way. For you to live in freedom. The gospel of God that Jesus preached was good news about God's relationship with us. And that good news required repentance. It required acknowledging that there's no way we can get to God on our own. And it also required belief. For us, that means to confess our sins before God and believe that Jesus died in our place. Taking God's judgment upon himself for sin. Judgment that we should have borne because of our own sin. It's a simple message, but here is another truth that goes hand in glove with the first truth. Even so, following Jesus is an all or nothing proposition. Repentance, we said last week, <clears throat> is a turning away from sin. Not in a good good works kind of a way. I'm going to quit doing this bad thing and I'm going to start doing this good thing. That's kind of a look at me sort of repentance. But it's an acknowledgement of our sin. And it's, and it's a deep sorrow. It's confessing a deep sorrow over our sins. That instead of says, look at me, it's woe is me. I am a... I am a sinner, save me, Jesus, and I will follow you with all my heart and all my life. Now, that's an impossible commitment, isn't it? 
I will follow you with all my heart and all my life. We may as well be saying, Lord, if you'll just let my team win this game, if you'll just let me get this job, if you'll just put that particular shirt on sale, you know, I will follow you for all. It's an, it's an impossible possible commitment. So we're thankful for the next truth that we're going to find in this text. Through the gospel, Jesus delivers us from ourselves. Many of the home group leaders um, are working through Tim Keller's book on Mark called Jesus the King, Understanding the Life and Death of Jesus. I, I try to stay away from Keller's thoughts in the sermon, but it's all over today's sermon. There's just no way to avoid it sometimes. It's just so good. I've already talked about, he's the one that talked about the use of euangelion uh, as a proclamation rather than a, rather than a condemnation or a, a, a warning. Um, so for the second time, I'm going to reference Keller by sharing this quote. Now, listen to it. I would typically put this on the screen, but I didn't this morning. Just listen. There's nothing that makes you more miserable or less interesting than self-absorption. How am I feeling? How am I doing? How are people treating me? Am I proving myself? Am I succeeding? Am I failing? Am I being treated justly? Self-absorption leaves us static. There's nothing more disintegrating. Why do we have wars, class struggles, family breakdown? Why are our relationships constantly exploding? It's the darkness of self-centeredness. I hope you are as convicted by this statement as I am. I, I would hate to think I'm all on my own out here. I guess that's self-centered, isn't it? Uh, (laughs) When we decide to be our own center, our own king, everything falls apart physically, socially, spiritually, psychologically. We have left the dance. The dance is a metaphor that... that, uh, Keller often uses, or he uses in this book, uh, about our relationship with the Lord. What an interesting, you know, I I sort of thought about, thinking about metaphors. Man, you ought to hear when Scott Colbert and I get together sometimes. Uh, We have so many layers of metaphors, it just would be nauseating to most of you. But I was just thinking about, you know, in my relationship with other people, Look, I don't mind to dance. I don't want to play games. Life's just too short to play games. A dance is one thing. Thought about that particularly when I was dating, uh, you know. Not that I was dancing with a lot of women. That's not the case. But Alice and I have talked about so many times how grateful we were that we just didn't, you know, we didn't play games. It was just, boom, she saw me and it was it, you know. I mean, <laughs> Man, I am given illustrations of this self-centeredness all over the place. Actually, it was the other way around. I saw her before she saw me, and I was immediately smitten. And then we had lunch together, and it was over. And we were so glad. It was, we were just so glad that we didn't have to play games with that, you know? And so, 
Tim Keller says, when we're self-centered, we've left the dance. It's no fun dancing alone. I did some of that while I was dating, too. Pretty good, too, at home, but it was no fun. But we all long to be brought back in. This longing is embedded in the legends of many cultures. And and though the stories are all different, they all have a similar theme. A true king will come back, slay the dragon, kiss us and wake us out of our sleep of death. Rescue us from the imprisonment in the tower. Lead us back into the dance. A true king will come back to put everything right and renew the entire world. The good news of the kingdom of God, and I would say the gospel, is this. Jesus is that true king. Close quote. Nothing else needs to be said. Four. Jesus chooses us, not the other way around. We'll get into this more in detail when we go through the text. It's a truth of Scripture that's hard to understand. And for many, it's very difficult to accept. And though we will never fully understand it, the sooner we acknowledge it, the the sooner we will benefit from the beauty that God loved us enough to choose us and to pull us into that dance. And because He is a God of order, our prayers for our lost loved ones Those that we care deeply about are meaningful. He's led us to pray for others. And there's a reason for that. He's sovereign. So why why aren't we just walking like this? Because that's not the way he designed it. Which is the point of the next point. Nonetheless, we are responsible to follow and obey The voice of authority. It's that authority thing again. So many people don't like it. You know, if you follow Jesus, this may sound foolish to you, but it makes perfect sense to those who refuse to obey Jesus when they say, well, I just believe that you've got to do the best you can and then God will save you. But that's not God saving you. That's you trying to save yourself and it cannot, it can't happen. We're called to repent of our sin and believe in Jesus. Living our lives under the cross. Right in the shadow of the cross. Which can be a difficult place to be. Until we recognize, as we talked about, right as we introduced this from Philippians 3.10. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship And share in his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. That when we live cross-centered lives, we commune with Jesus in a way that makes everything else not matter. And what would you give if you could just make nothing else matter? I mean, destroy you. Live at the foot of cross that's the way of the king and number six there is more to the battles of this life than meets the eye God is sovereign and Satan is active always the 
evident demonic activity around Jesus was intense, probably because he was here on the earth. And there was panic in the, in, in the, in the spirit world uh, amongst the demons. So it was intense at that time. But make no mistake, there's more going on than we can see and describe. So it's always good to remember that Jesus cares deeply about our needs. Number seven. Time and again, we find Jesus moved to compassion and healing those that he encounters. Large numbers, in fact. Jesus is healing people all over the place. We're told in John that the, that the miracles reinforce the message, the purpose of the miracle. So it was so that we might believe that Jesus was who he said he was, which is God, Savior, Messiah. Yet whenever Jesus saw people in need, he healed them. Not everybody, I'm sure, but what, those that he healed, he did so out of compassion. Even so, spiritual needs are more important than physical needs. We say such things, but do we believe such things? We do until there is some great physical material need on us. In his ministry, whenever people began to focus on the material blessings of Christ and the physical blessings of Christ, he would remove himself. He'd get away and say, no, you're, you're missing the point. And sometimes he would say things that were not only difficult to understand, but were sharp and very directed toward those who missed the point. So sometimes when ministry needs were and demands were especially intense, Jesus would take the disciples out of this frenzied activity off to the side, or sometimes he would just slip away himself and the disciples couldn't find him. Why? Because times of intense activity and times of crisis call for extended periods of prayer. In the first place, let me acknowledge, as I have many times from here, prayer is a difficult discipline for me. We talked about prayer at our men's breakfast last Saturday, and, and a lot of people said, you know, it's tough for me. Uh, some said, I'm focused on anything and everything, but when it comes to prayer, my mind goes in a hundred directions. But when life is very full, it's really hard to pray. We tend to just stay busy rather than pulling away in prayer. But Jesus didn't do that. One of the reasons that he slipped away from the crowd and also his disciples is that, is that he knew, knew that the praise of man can be dangerously intoxicating. Moving us away for God, from God's plan for our lives and, and his authority on our Lives, Because if we're so busy working and serving, we're not hearing what he's saying. Or it's a, it's a temptation anyway. And, and, and when we do this, when we allow ourselves to be intoxicated by the praise of man, it's because our identity is in the wrong place. We take our purpose, our meaning in life, 
based on what others think about us. And look, it's difficult not to do that. We're a performance-driven world, especially a performance-driven society. Nobody's ever been as successful as we are in business. And you, you, you've got to perform. Especially the older you get, there's somebody young just waiting for you to make one miscue. And you're out and the young guy's in. So our identity gets wrapped up in our performance and what people think about us. If our identity is in Christ, neither praise nor criticism will affect us nearly to the level that others intend for it to affect us. Why? Because the way of the disciple is the way of the king and the way of the king is the way of the cross. It's hard to care much when you're dead. I heard a story about a seminary professor who took his students out of I've shared this before. I don't know if I have or not. There are enough new ones that it's okay. Uh, he took the, his students out. He, he said, guys, we're going we're gonna to have an exercise in preaching. We're going to accomplish two things today. This, this man that, um, that very much opposed the seminary. Um, has died, and we're going to his grave, and this is a good opportunity for you to preach judgment from Scripture. So they went out there, and they let him have it. They came back the next class, and he said, I have made a horrible mistake. I was was thinking about somebody else. This guy was actually a great benefactor, and you're here today because he has done so many wonderful things. For the seminary, so we're going to go out today and encourage him and thank him and just praise him for his his heart of giving. And so they did. In the next class, he said, now, how did he respond? (laughs) He didn't respond. He's dead. And when we're dead, we tend not to react at what comes at us. But though we're dead to self, we still live. Which leads us to the final truth that we're going to mention in this text. Though there is so much more in this text. When Jesus has touched your life, you will not be able to keep silent about it. I repented of my sin and believed Jesus. This is another one of those things I've told you before, but it's worth telling again. I I, I grew up in a Baptist church, not saying anything about a Baptist. I went to the Methodist for a couple of years. Um... I heard the gospel all my life, but I didn't understand it. I I just couldn't get it through my head. My good friend who had been saved the year before said, my pastor told me, you just got, you got to come through Jesus. You can't get to God without coming through Jesus. And so that's what I did on May 1st of 1972. I went, I went to my knees and I said, Lord, I'm coming through Jesus. And he radically changed my life. My friend's pastor, by the way, was Jim Acock. So, you know, it's kind of a circle of life kind of a thing here. And I, 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 I committed that I was not going to say anything the next day at school. You know why? Because so many times I said, I'm changing this. I can tell you right now. I've quit saying that just in the last year or two. Because I, I can't tell you how many times I'm going to quit doing this. I'm going to quit doing that. I quit football every weekend. That'll happen to you when you put for the Panthers and the Tar Heels. But so about 4 o'clock this afternoon, I'll be done with it. For the year. Until next Saturday. Unless Carolina plays on Thursday. I can't remember. Let's see. But 
But so that's what, you know, I wasn't going to do it because I can't tell you how many, the, the phrase we used was turning over a new leaf, you know. I was going to, it was going to be different. So I wasn't going to say anything because I'd done that so many times before. Well, you know what happened? I went to school and I couldn't keep quiet. I just couldn't. I was telling everybody. You know, last night I prayed to Jesus and something and something was different. When Jesus touches your life, there's no way you can keep quiet about it. Look, I, I realize at your place of work, there may be uh, regulations about sharing your religious beliefs. But my goodness, does that, do people at work know that you're a Christian? And if they know that you claim to be a Christian, surely they don't say, you know what? If that's what a Christian is, I, I don't know. Nah. When Jesus touches and changes your life, you can't keep quiet about it. We're going to see that over and over in the Gospels. Um, let's look at our text for today and just a few brief comments as we go. Look for the truth that we've contemplated to show up in this text because that's the grounds for the principles that we have discussed thus far. Let's begin in verse 14. Now after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus proclaimed the gospel of God. The time had come for him to fulfill God's plan for saving mankind. Thus he could add to the message, John's message of repentance, believe. Believe what? Well, at the time... Jesus had not died and been resurrected. The Holy Spirit had not come. So the full gospel was not in play at this point. But at the very least, people were to believe that Jesus was sent from God. Some wouldn't make the connections to his claim to be God. In fact, most would not, but some would. In calling the disciples, Jesus initiated God's plan for the gospel to spread. Verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants that followed him. Now, Mark's so busy just telling us the story and just moving on to the next thing. Man, can you imagine what that scene was like? I mean, here's a pretty lucrative family business. And Jesus says, I want you out, and they didn't waste any time. I mean, you suppose Zebedee is saying, and somebody's sitting, you know, he's casting nets, and they're saying, Zebedee, Zeb, look. He says, where are they going? That, that, you know, that teacher that's making such a big splash these days said, follow me, and they just left. And he's going, hey, 
And they're just following. Now, the practice of disciples following rabbis or teachers, teachers in that day was common. They would, they would move from place to place or sometimes they would set up, you know, in the, sort of in the schools of Plato and Aristotle. Different, they had different ways of teaching. Aristotle liked to walk around and his students was, would, do, would follow him. That's kind of the way Jesus uh, did. But the rabbis didn't go out and choose their disciples like this. You would make application to be a student of this particular rabbi. And the better the rabbi, the better quality student, the pickier he could be. And so uh, it was very much like applying to university in our society today. People would apply and the rabbi would say, okay, I'll choose you. But, it, but he didn't go out. This was radical what Jesus did. To walk out and to say, Colby, James, follow me. Kim, you can come along as well if you would like. I think we're going to need to keep them straight, you know, so we need you. Um, But especially in that day, males were called, women followed. You see that in, in, in the Gospel of Luke. There were as many 70. Look, he's calling disciples here. Later, they're called apostles. They were sent ones. But there were as many as 70 people that would follow Jesus pretty much all the time. So he does this radical thing and he says, come and follow me. Now, he was already recognized as a teacher in that day. Of course, these fishermen probably wouldn't have been on most rabbis short list, which ought to encourage all of us. These were the men that changed the world. God changed the world through them. Jesus did not impact the world during his life. Of course, he's the center of all history. Don't don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But it was the disciples who went forth that proclaimed the message of the kingdom of God and pointed to Jesus. They were the ones that God used to change the world. Probably the two most important, Jesus and Peter, Fishermen, excuse me, John and Peter, fishermen. When when God's call is on our lives, he is going to use us in ways that no one imagined. Maybe most of all ourselves, maybe, maybe least of all we expected something great from ourselves. Our responsibility is to respond in obedience and to follow Jesus. Verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, and not as one of the scribes. Jesus didn't teach like the other teachers of the day, who would reference other people's opinions about Scripture, much like I did Tim Keller. They would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this, Rabbi so-and-so said this. And this is what we understand because of all these different commentaries that we have on the Scriptures. How long it had been when Jesus came along, how long had it been since God had spoken to His people? 400 years. And during that time, especially toward the time of Jesus, no rabbi would walk around saying, thus says the Lord. But Jesus did. 
And they were amazed at his teaching. And they said, he speaks with authority. And may I say to you, when you speak the word of God, it is truth and it carries authority when you speak. So don't be intimidated, but don't be surprised if you encounter opposition. Verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man who had an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Now, Jesus' rebuke here is very sharp. If the English translated the Greek literally, Jesus would be saying, shut up! You got nothing to say. Come out of him. He was very direct. Now, go to sleep again. (laughs) Let me ask you this. Do you sometimes, are you fearful of the dark side of the spirit world? You don't need to be. Look, we don't encounter it. Like people do in other parts of the world. Demonic activity. And I have heard. Really startling things. That go on in other parts of the world. From people who believe very much like I do. Not people that I would consider. Really out there you know. And well. No. There's a lot that goes on. We don't see that. But even still. We don't need to be afraid. If. You are in Jesus. If you are hiding in Jesus, there is no demonic authority that can overcome you. Now, Satan is always fighting against you, and don't take that lightly. In fact, God may give him room to cause pain in your life, but do not be afraid. God is sovereign. Over all, as we have already acknowledged today. Verse 27, and they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. What authority is this? And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with the fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. And she began to serve them. Simon's, Peter's mother-in-law. Yes, the first pope was married. If you believe such. If you believe that he was the first pope, which I don't. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. It's impossible 
to miss Jesus' compassion for those who were hurting. Mark employs typical hyperbole when he says the whole city was at the door. We know it was a large crowd. But don't you know that Jesus healed so many more than we're told that he did? So what's up in verse 34 when Jesus commands the demons not to say anything because they knew him? Well, first of all, Jesus is not getting into a contest with these guys. The demons are possibly trying to gain some advantage over him. And he's having none of it. He's saying, shut up, get out. But later when he commands a man that he healed to be quiet about it, you have to recognize there's, there's more in play. I mean, there's a lot to say about this, but perhaps this is one reason. Perhaps the primary reason. The gospel message was more important than the miracles, and Jesus didn't want people to be distracted from the message. We see this over and over in Jesus' ministry. People are, are, are saying... The man fed 5,000 people with five fish and two loaves of bread. Or is it the other way? Five loaves of bread and two fish. It's the one miracle, by the way, that's in all four Gospels. So I should know it. Um, But, and they would say, we want to make him the bread king. And he said, no, I am the bread of life. You're missing The point, the message was more important than the miracles. In fact, there are not many times of of quite a few miracles taking place in Scripture. They're just in little periods of time. And always it's to affirm a message that is being preached. Um, We have a lot of new people coming into grace these days. And you know what I hear a lot of times after people have been here for a bit? Wow, I have learned so much about Scripture. Now, that's not because we're brilliant teachers. It's not because because we're preaching better than other people. What What it is, is that we're looking at Scripture in a particular way. You cannot come to Scripture without a system for interpreting Scripture. Now, every system gets in the way of truth at some point. And when you come to those places, you have to to either make what you believe fit into your system, you have to throw your system away and, and find another system, or you have to suspend your system long enough to get the truth of that text and then put it right back in place. Which is what we try to do. Now, there are several, several ways that we look at Scripture. We, we look at it through the lens of, of the gospel. The gospel is all of Scripture. And that cycle of creation and fall, repentance, or excuse me, uh, uh, redemption and then restoration is over and over in Scripture. We look at it through covenant. God making a way for His people. God taking all the responsibility of himself for the requirements of the covenant, and then he extends the blessings of the covenant 
to us. And there's another one, that, another thing that we look at through all of Scripture. It's, it's the role of discipleship. It's the role of, of God's people serving one another and helping one another to understand Scripture at a higher level and meeting their needs. And in so doing, the gospel goes forth when we do that. I, I, I just want to say this. See, I didn't plan to say this. I just scribbled it before the service kept saying, Allison, let me have your pen. Let me have your pen. Had to get it back, you know, t- to write this down. But we are at a time at Grace where three or four things are happening. One, uh, we're experiencing some growth. A lot of you have started coming in the last month or two. And at this point anyway, you like what you're seeing. Hang around. You'll find that we're just like everybody else. You know, we got our issues. But that's the beauty of the gospel. See, it frees us from saying, you got to be this way. Or else. Um, second, we have a lot of needs in our church right now. There are a lot of people who are hurting right now. Who have material needs. Physical needs. And third, we have a heavy teaching load. Right? I have a heavy teaching load right now. Look, I, we're doing this church history class. You can, those of you who are in it, you know what's involved. It is way more information than anybody can absorb. In fact, I have ended up putting a whole lot of the responsibility on Neil because starting Mark is a whole other thing. And leading home group. And one of the things about Grace Community Church that is different than other churches is that it's a plurality of leadership. I am not the head honcho. I am also not the work mule. I can't do all the ministry of the church. And so the elders serve many of you in many ways. Deacons do serve you in many ways. Home group leaders, which is made up primarily of elders and deacons at the moment. But we need more people to lead home groups who aren't in those leadership positions of the church. You're all, all of those people are serving, but there's more need than even they can fill. They've got jobs. So here's, here's, here's my challenge. You're called to serve the body. You ever thought about the fact that spiritual gifts are always given? For the benefit of others, not for your own benefit. Always, it's for the benefit of others. And when we serve others, then we are blessed enormously. Now look, some of you have such a heavy load in your life right now. I am ordering you, and I never order anybody to do. I'm ordering you not to feel guilty and say, well, okay, I need to up my game. No, you can't. In fact, you may be the one we need to minister to. But we need to be ministering to one another. I'm going to ask you this week. Who is it you're going to minister to? And if you're in deep need and somebody tries to minister to you, allow them. That may be tougher than, you know, tightening up your belt and saying, okay, well, let's, let's just give it a better effort. Let somebody minister to you. Let them serve you. Let them help you. And I, I, this happens to me over and over. See, and I'm not following. We're going to talk about this. I don't follow Jesus' example. 
But I get in cycles. I get in cycles where I start trying to minister to everybody. And I can't. And I'm in one of those cycles. And the teaching ministry is great. So I'm not saying I need help. I'm saying we need The elders, the deacons, the home group leaders, we need help. We all need one another. So let's serve as God called us to serve. Now, looking back at our text, the religious leaders opposed Jesus. But the people who were healed by him wanted to make him the kind of king who would meet their personal and material needs. And we've got some of that going on. And we're we're called to serve one another in that way. But when you're only looking to God. To meet your personal or material needs. That's not the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of me. And Jesus would have none of it. And the disciples didn't get it. Verse 35. And rising very early in the morning. While it was still dark. He departed and went out to a desolate place. And there He prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said said to him, Everybody is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Now again, we're limited in our English text. What the original language is saying. And look folks, we're almost done. I, I, I realize I've taken a little extra time to make this last point. But, but this is important. Peter you get it in the, in the Greek language. He's ticked off. He's like, Jesus, what are you doing? Your poll numbers are through the roof. We need to get you back in front of the people now. But Jesus did exactly what God led him to do in the frenzy. He got away and prayed. Now, once again, the Greek is telling us something that the English is not. He prayed, and he, he, he was praying for an extended period of time. He only, this word is only used three times in, in the New Testament, or in the Gospel of Mark. It's, when, it's here, it's when Jesus sent the disciples out into a storm, and it was in Gethsemane. Whenever Jesus was in crisis or whenever the activity got out of hand, he pulled away and prayed. And that doesn't make any sense to us as Americans. What happens with prayer in your life when things get really busy? The opposite of what needs to happen. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Actually, that word pity is kind of a compassion. Actually could be translated anger. Maybe that's not what's intended, but it could be. But Jesus was often angry with the effects of sin on the world. And immediately, Jesus said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Jesus sternly 
charged him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Did you notice in this passage that Jesus didn't, it doesn't say that Jesus healed the leper. It says that he made him clean. Leprosy was the worst kind of Disease. It, it referred to several types of skin disease. But when you had leprosy, you had to leave your family. You had to live outside the city. You were cut off. It was, it was, it was the closest thing you got almost as zombies today. I mean, you know, it's like you're, you're living dead is what you are. And so when Jesus cleansed this man, he gave him back his life. And he restored him to family and community, and that's what we receive times a million when Jesus makes us clean. Well, Jesus commanded the man not to say anything except to the priest, but the cleansed leper disobeyed. There are different interpretations on this text, but I'm thinking that this man is just, look, he's just having a hard time. I mean, how would you like to be given that command when you've just been clean cleaned cleansed from leprosy when jesus truly touches your life you can't keep quiet about it look i said last week that that the early church didn't do much in the way of outreach kinds of activities and events but that doesn't mean the proclamation of the gospel wasn't going forth in fact just the opposite it was spreading like wildfire because we didn't depend on having some campaign to get people in and hear the gospel. People were going out sharing the gospel all over the place, even at the peril of their lives. Because Jesus had cleansed them, and they were blessed in ways that they never imagined possible. Would that we were those kinds of disciples. Before we pray, I just want you to take a moment and put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Having been called to follow Jesus. By the way, on this day, right now, at this moment, you're being called to follow Jesus, no matter what your relationship is with God. Well, how do I know He's chosen me? Are you hearing Him say, repent and believe then he's calling you. And your responsibility is to respond to that. If you were a follower of Jesus, remember it's an all or nothing proposition. You've got to keep that in balance. Just like I'm confessing, my own life is out of balance right now. I have to get it back to balance. I've got to get away. I have to spend More time in prayer and in study. That's the best way that I can serve you. But this is an all or nothing kind of deal. It's not fill in spare time. It's not show up, say that you go to that church so that you can be all right in society. 
in the South, you know, that's a big deal. It's not flip a ten in the offer. It's an all or nothing proposition. Are you following Jesus? Then follow him. Let's pray. Lord, um, oh, just because of the day, we tend to focus so much on the comfort and the blessings that you give which may be why we're so confused when life gets hard. You've called us to follow Jesus and the way of the King is the way of the cross. May we take up our crosses on this day and follow you. Lord, uh, if there are there, there are those here this morning who have been trying to do their best so that you might say, you know, I'm going to let you in. I pray that for those, you will reveal to them their deep need of Jesus because of their sin. And if you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus, if you've been trying if you've been dependent, you've been basing your relationship with God on, on what you do. Remember this, it's not about do, it's about done. It's what Jesus has done for us. And let me encourage you to just say, I acknowledge, Lord, in your heart, privately, just quietly. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. And that my sin has separated you, me from you. And I deserve an eternity in hell away from you. But I believe that Jesus, I believe this wonderful news that I'm hearing and that you're causing me to understand that Jesus died in my place. And I place my trust for all that is involved in a relationship with you in Jesus. Would you do that? Oh, Lord, uh, we so do not deserve your blessings. And we so find them when we follow Christ, even when it involves a cross, and it always does. Give us the strength and the power to live in the ways that we can't, in fact, just let Jesus live through us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Would you stand together? Jesus, that King of kings and Lord of lords, said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations 
baptizing them in the name of the Holy Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching to them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go, make disciples in the name of Jesus. Amen.